Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is exciting to have you all here for Easter Sunday. I just want to say again, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So praise God for that, that we worship our risen Savior. Uh, before I dive into our message today, I just want to take a quick moment, and in your bulletins, you might see an insert. Uh, there is a conversation just about who is your one. Uh, several of you who have been part of our church for these past several weeks, uh, we've gone through a series talking about taking the gospel to the community. And what I'd like to do is, is just have everybody take a moment. And uh, there are names on the back. These are the individuals that people have come forward with who are wanting to take the gospel to. So if you'd be kind enough and just maybe take those home with you. I don't know what you do. You know, If you put them in your Bible or put them on a refrigerator or whatnot. The thing that we're asking is that you would be in prayer for these individuals. Uh, excited about it. Excited to see how God will work and how God will move. Um, and also, again, if there's someone else that the Lord's laid on your heart, feel free to come and see me. I'd be happy to get you that study and we can continue to take the gospel to the community. That being said, this morning, I want to take a moment and I want to talk to you about justice. I don't know about you, but we all are proponents of justice, aren't we? We like to see justice being served. In one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men, we see justice served. Some of you might have seen it, some of you might have watched it, and the famous kind of part is where Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson are in that famous exchange. Tom Cruise is the attorney essentially investigating the death of a military individual and the two soldiers that have been accused of his murder. But what we come to find, obviously, is that there's been a code red ordered, and the famous colonel is the one who is guilty, played by Jack Nicholson. Those of you that remember that line, essentially Tom Cruise is sort of investigating and speaking, and all of a sudden he turns and Jack Nicholson is on the stage, and Tom Cruise cries out, he says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And then we come and we see, obviously, justice being served. Later on in the movie, Jack Nicholson is convicted of the crime of which he is guilty. And we love watching justice being served. That being said, I want to take you to another story. It's a very interesting one, and I want to talk to you about a real-life individual by the name of Greg Nottage. Now, some of you probably have never heard that name, and I don't expect you to. But if you were to see him on the street, he is an unopposing individual. He looks like you and I. In fact, he has glasses, has a very smiling face, gray hair, and always wears a bow tie. But interestingly enough, this individual has a story. First and foremost, he's actually my second cousin's husband. And this individual is guilty, or was guilty, of murder in the first degree. He served 19 years in the California state system, and you would never know this. But interestingly enough, as he traveled through the court system, he learned how to survive. This person who would look normal to all of us was someone that I don't ever want to necessarily find in a dark corner. He had to survive. He had to make his way through this system for 19 years. And interestingly enough, when you hear that he is guilty of murder in the first degree, what's your initial thought? Don't go anywhere near him. But here's what's interesting. The story of Greg Nonich is this. 
He was unjustly convicted, and after 19 years, the true murderer came forward. He was in prison, and Greg served an unjust sentence. He wasn't the murderer. He indeed was not guilty, and his life was taken away from him, and he served 19 years in the California state system. He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost everything you had, and what's interesting is, is you would think that he would be upset. But here's the bus story. He's now remarried, and he's actually back working and helping local inmates find jobs in the Bay Area. You look at that and you think, where is the justice in that? What happened? How could someone be unjustly accused and have to sit in a cell surviving gang attacks and riots for 19 years when they weren't guilty. Where is the justice in that? We love justice. We want justice. And so this morning, I want to just come before you and I want to ask this very simple question. Would you be willing to allow an unjust accusation, endure an unjust trial, receive an unjust sentence and accept an unjust death to let your unjust accusers go free. We love justice, don't we? We want justice to be served. And so I want to take a moment and I want you to think about that question. Is there anyone in this room, if I called out to you today and said, please stand and what we're going to do is we're going to take you and give you an unjust accusation. We're going to come forward and make you endure an unjust trial in that you're going to receive an unjust sentence and because of it, you're going to have to accept an unjust death. All the while you know, in order to do so, your unjust accusers are going to go free. Would anyone come forward? And yet what we celebrate today is exactly what Christ has done for us on the cross. Today we celebrate Resurrection Sunday and praise God for it. We rejoice that we worship a risen Savior. But what I'd like to do this morning is I want to take us back to what Christ did so that prayerfully when we do worship a risen Savior, we truly recognize what Christ has done for us. Interestingly enough, today's title is Prophetic Prediction and Providential Fulfillment. And in order to explain that, what I want to do is take us back to the text in Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8, of what we spoke about last week. This text was written by a prophet 680 to 700 years before Christ even existed. But in it, we begin to see a hint of what Christ would endure. We begin to understand the unjust nature of Christ's trial. These words state he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then don't miss this. By oppression and judgment... He was taken away. How many of us are fans of justice? How many of us want justice to be served in the court system? 
How many of us recognize that today's court system is actually based on Judeo-Christian values of what we will see in a moment on the text in Deuteronomy? What we have in our modern court system today where we hope and pray that an individual receives a fair trial, where we hope and pray that the individual is innocent until proven guilty, is all an establishment of what Jesus should have had when he went before the Sanhedrin. You see, in Jesus' day, individuals prided themselves in the justice system. Back in the text of Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, we read these words. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town. The Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe binds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice. Notice that. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Given those words out of Deuteronomy, the people of God brought about a legal system of which they prided themselves in moving forward with justice. It was a very systematic system it was a very detailed system. It was a very important system because of what God had said. To help us understand this, what we need to recognize is that every town that had over 120 people in it would have what we call a court system or a Sanhedrin. Now, depending upon the size of the town, that Sanhedrin would have to have an odd number of individuals who would be part of the court system. The reason for that was having an odd number would be that should there be some form of deliberation, you would always end with a tie-breaking decision or a tie-breaking vote. In most towns, the Sanhedrin would consist of at least 23 men. But the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem consisted of 71. And interestingly enough, what we're going to find out in a moment is Jesus was placed, or should have been placed, for what occurred before the great Sanhedrin. Now in priding themselves in this legal system, there were several things in place to assure that a just trial would take place. To do the best that they could to make sure that justice was served. And yet what we're going to find, and for anybody that is in the legal system, this is the most unjust trial that has ever occurred in recorded history. In fact, it is wholly illegal. Let me take a moment and let me talk to you a little bit about of what should have occurred. In a moment, we're going to read essentially about where Jesus is in the house of Caiaphas. He is being accused by the Sanhedrin, and it is at night. But there are many problems with this, because this should never, ever, ever had occurred. Why is that so? The first thing that I want you to look at and see about the legal problems with the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus is this. Number one, there is no crime presented and the arrest of Jesus is illegal. 
First and foremost, we recognize that Jesus is arrested where? In the garden. In order to be arrested, a crime had to be presented. He was illegally arrested, and what we come to discover, he was arrested via a bribe. The arrest itself is illegal. Number two, we come to discover that there are no valid witnesses and their testimonies are false and inconclusive. In a moment, we're going to see that the Sanhedrin is going around trying to find people to bring about false witness to Jesus, and people won't do so. Yet what they do is, is they're able to finally find two individuals whom they bribe, and they come forward and present a testimony that isn't what Jesus ultimately said. Now, the other thing that you have to recognize, in this system, in order for someone to be convicted, witnesses had to be examined, their testimony had to be proven, and their testimony had to be accurate. And there is no accurate testimony here. The next thing, too, is this event where Jesus is being examined takes place at night. Under Jewish law, any examination before the Sanhedrin had to take place during the day. For a group of individuals that prided themselves in a justice system, this is wholly illegal. And so interestingly enough, we already have three problems with this process, but it gets even worse. We notice, and we'll see in a moment as we look in the uh, chapter of Mark 14, 53, that the event where Jesus is being accused, where the event where he is convicted, and where the event where his sentence is pronounced takes place in a home, not in a court, and not before public witnesses. Particularly if a capital punishment verdict is going to be brought forth, the system would move forward and the judges would come, they would sit and they would hear the evidence. And the public could sit and watch the trial to make sure that the system was moving forward justly. There are no public witnesses. This is hidden at night in the home of a high priest. The other thing that is interesting is this. The judges were bringing the charges, and they were not impartial. And this is entirely illegal. In the legal system, the Sanhedrin existed to hear the charge. They could not bring the charge. Someone would have to bring a charge, and the Sanhedrin was simply there to hear it, to weigh the evidence, and then to make a decision regarding the charge. And yet, the ones who should be hearing it are bringing it. And that also is entirely illegal. The next thing that I want to tell you that is interesting is the event occurs on a holy day. This also is illegal. It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the eve of the Passover. According to Jewish law, no trials could be held on a holy day. And so they waive that, and they decide to go without that. 
Now, the other thing that is interesting we're going to see in a moment is after they examine Jesus, they cry out, the high priest tears his shirt, he says, I've heard enough, we have enough to go on, here is the sentence that is pronounced. And here's what's so interesting, all of them agree. The vote is unanimous. Now, for us, in our system, we think, well, that's a good thing. But here's another problem with what transpires. The verdict of a unanimous vote under rabbinic law would have a concern that a unanimous vote would be part of a conspiracy and not the result of calm and sober deliberation. And that was written within the law. Interestingly enough, if we read the account of what's going on when Jesus is being accused, first and foremost, the vote can't be unanimous, and there certainly isn't calm and sober deliberation. This is simply a process that they are going through with a decision that has already been made. They want Jesus dead. And the reason is, Jesus has discovered the truth that those that should be bringing justice have turned the justice system into a profitable system. They want him dead. They're going to do anything they can to do so, and they completely waive justice for Jesus. The next thing that's interesting is that Jesus was not given a defense. Under the law, Jesus should have had someone who would have defended him. No one comes forward. He's not given an opportunity to say his side of the story. And sadly enough, that too is illegal. Now the other thing that's interesting is, is a death sentence could only be passed in a legal court. To pronounce capital punishment on someone, and this indeed, as we discover, was a capital case, the Sanhedrin would have to have every member present. They would also have been required to meet in the hall known as the Hall of Hewn Stones in order for it to be legal. This does not occur. No capital sentence could be pronounced outside of this place. The process and the pronouncement take place in a private residence, which is also illegal. Now, here's what's interesting too. The charges against Jesus, they were switched by the Sanhedrin when they bring him before Pilate. Because the Sanhedrin knew Rome didn't care about a charge of blasphemy, they concocted a false charge that Jesus was plotting against Rome and therefore guilty of treason. So under one system, which is entirely illegal, they move forward and say, Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, yet that isn't just. But then in order to move forward, because they know they're under Rome, they come forward and they don't say, hey, we've charged this person with blasphemy. This is what we're coming for you to examine. They completely switch the charge. Oh, that, that's no problem. What's really going on here is Jesus is conspiring against the Roman system. And that would have concern with the Roman government. Now, I don't know about you, but boy, to be unjustly accused of something and then to be brought for it 
another trial and to have what I was accused of switched and changed? I mean, it's entirely unjust. And here's the other one. And this is what I want you to think about. For capital punishment, before condemning the individual, think about this for a minute. The judges within the trial had to fast and pray before God for a period of at least a day. 24 hours before commencing with the sentence. So let me just pause there for a minute. You go through the trial. Hopefully it's just. Hopefully the sentence is pronounced. Okay, capital punishment. If the sentence is pronounced, at least 24 hours had to occur. And the reason for this was, number one, the judges had to pray and say, is there anything else that we need to examine? It also gave time to where if there were any other evidences out there, they could be brought before the court and re-examined. This is what is so crazy. From the moment of Jesus' arrest to the time that he was dead on a cross, the entire process, the entire process was less than 16 hours. No justice was served. And the final thing that I want to show you, and the one that I find so interesting as well, in a moment when we read what happens, the high priest tears his chest and says, we have enough, and the sentence should be this. What's interesting is, in the Sanhedrin, they prided themselves in non-bribery or non-forced accusation. And so the proper process that should have occurred was that each individual, all 71 of the people, should have gone and they should have cast their vote individually. But more important, they should have started with the lower members or the lower ranking members of the judicial system and they would always end with the higher ones. And the reason that was important was because they didn't want those who were on the lower part of the system being influenced by those that had greater power. And yet what happens is the one who has highest power comes forward and in a manner of expression rips open his, his garment and says, that is it and you all must pronounce him guilty. So this whole thing is a concocted conspiracy that completely wipes out justice anywhere. And as we see back to what was stated in Isaiah, Jesus never opens his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And why is that? Why would we do that? I said earlier in my question, would you be willing to allow an unjust accusation, endure an unjust trial, receive an unjust sentence, and accept an unjust death to let your unjust accusers go free? And those of you that have gathered here, that's the point that I'm driving to today. Because the reason that we come here today to worship a risen Savior is Christ was willing to do that for you and I. It is so easy for us to look at these individuals and say, how unjust is it? But then I sit there and I remind myself of the words, it was my sin that held him there. 
until it was accomplished. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And we look at this and we recognize that no justice is being served, let alone what Christ had to endure on the cross. And yet Christ willingly, obediently, and lovingly keeps his mouth shut and the only question that he answers because he's not legally obligated to answer any question that isn't legally true. The only question that he answers is the question of, are you God? And when he says, yes, I am, he knows that that's the only way that those who are unjustly accusing him can move forward with this unjust sentence. I want to take a moment, and if you turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to take a look just briefly at what's going on. We're in Mark 14. This is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all of the high priest's elders and teachers of the law came together. Now, may we remember, okay, through other accounts, we have to recognize that this takes place in the house of Caiaphas. Okay, so this event is taking place in a home at night. And as I've said earlier, this is entirely illegal. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat there with the guards and warmed himself in a fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking, okay, were looking for evidence. That's entirely illegal, like I said before. They already should have had a charge that was brought for them to judge. So they're trying to concoct some form of a story. They were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. It's already been made. They've already made the decision. They're not ruling justly. They're saying, we want him dead. Let's concoct a story to do so. And they completely eradicate the system of which they should have followed. But they did not find any. Just a little hint. Just a little hint there that they couldn't find any evidence because Jesus wasn't guilty. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Like I said earlier, when people would come forward and testify, the statements that they had would have to be cohesive and unified. And if they were not, and the witnesses' statements were not, you could not presume or declare guilt on an individual. And so they're still angry, they're still upset. And while they've already pronounced an unjust uh, sentence, and while they're already trying to find witnesses, while they're already trying to bribe false witnesses, and no one is able to do so, they continue to move forward. Then someone stood up and gave this false testimony against him. I heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days, yet I will build another not by man. Interestingly enough, for someone to move forward and say that they would destroy the temple was also a capital offense. But that testimony is false. 
Because if we are following our gospel closely, Jesus never points and says, I will destroy this temple to the building. He says, destroy this temple, pointing to himself. And he says, I will raise it up in three days. Anyone who would have heard this, anyone who would have known this, they would say, that testimony is false. But they're trying to concoct something to move forward to rid themselves of Jesus. Because the system that they have in place, the system from which they profit, the system from which they're profiting illegally has been accused by our Heavenly Father. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, oh, excuse me, I want to go back. Um, it says, yet even their testimony did not agree. And then in verse 60, it says, The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and did not give an answer. It's interestingly enough, because number one, Jesus doesn't have to answer this legally. He knows the legal system. This charge is illegal. The other thing, too, is Jesus also knew that the way the question was posed, and for any of you that are attorneys out there, you could probably explain it better than me, but what was happening here was there was a, a manner of entrapment. They were causing Jesus to self-incriminate himself, and you can't do that in the legal system. Any attorney would know that the questions that you pose have to be open, and they can't be geared or uh, placed in a way that would self-incriminate. So Jesus doesn't answer because he doesn't have to. Again, the high priest said to him, are you the Christ? Notice that one, okay? So the first one is false. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And this is the one that Jesus answers. Even though the process is illegal, even though everything that is going on here is unjust, and Jesus should have had every right to declare a mistrial, Anyone who would be in the legal system here would be crying out and saying, this is absolutely preposterous. But Jesus tells the truth. He says, ego a me. I am. I am. And therein lies the entrapment that they now have. And they take the righteousness of Jesus the truth of Jesus, the fact that indeed he doesn't lie and it presents who he is and they use it against him and they take that to move forward to kill him unjustly. And I go back and I think, how unjust are these people? And then I sit there and again I remind myself it was my sin that held him there. I am, said Jesus, and watch this, humbly but truthfully, he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven, okay? And you think, okay, that's great, right? But you have to look at what's going on in the scene. Earlier, Jesus had accused the Sanhedrin of being corrupt, and what they are doing is they're trying to rid themselves of him. And interestingly enough, Jesus answers the question that entraps him to the sentence. But then he just briefly says, P.S., by the way, 
it ain't over. It ain't over. And interestingly enough, this is when the high priest loses it. He absolutely loses it. And mind you, in a capital sentence, you must conduct yourself with what? Calm and sober deliberation. The high priest tore his clothes, okay? Now mind you, they haven't established witnesses. They haven't established the true crime. They haven't done it justly. And if they were to do it justly, if it were to be established, the crime would be stated, this is what occurred, this is what Jesus is guilty of, and all 71 of them would then systematically go forward and say, given what I've seen, guilty, not guilty. Individually, and then the votes would be read before the public. We don't need any more witnesses. Completely throws out the justice system. We don't need any more witnesses. Why? Because he knows that he's caught, he knows that he's guilty, and he's enraged that Jesus says, I've answered your questions, I know where this is going, but I'm telling you, it's not over. You have heard the blasphemy. Okay, so he pronounces the sentence, which is also entirely illegal. And notice, this is the person with the most influence. And he says, what do you think? Now, think about this for a minute, okay? Put yourself in the story. This isn't, hey, what do you guys think? Like, we want justice here, right? Like, let's, let's do this Democrat. What, what do you think? No, he's like, Ugh! he gets all the emotion that he can. And he says, this is blasphemy. He's guilty. I'm the great high priest, and I own all of you. P.S., by the way, I pay your paycheck. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And oh, by the way, I have the power, and if you go against me, it's going to be seen. So everyone is pushed in to calling him guilty. Which, by the way, everyone does say he's guilty, which is also illegal. Because mind you, back in the system, a unanimous vote, <laughs> they, they, they even wrote it themselves. A unanimous vote would suggest that a conspiracy was being concocted. And they completely eradicate it. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists. I won't even go into there about the illegal, excuse me, the illegality of that. These men were supposed to be calm and sober. They were supposed to be the pillar of the community that upheld the justice system. And they accused Jesus unlawfully, and after doing so, even with the sentence, they go forward and they spit on him and they beat him and they mock him. And they say, prophesy. Prophesy. 
prophesy. And what I love about this is they're chanting prophesy, prophesy, prophesy. And yet just a few moments ago, Jesus already had. And if anyone was paying attention, if anyone knew what was going on, he indeed had prophesied. He said, it isn't over. I will be back. Some of you love that famous line of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. This is better than that. Jesus comes forward and he's like, I'll be back, right? What a movie when we see Jesus go to the cross and rise from the grave. And so a couple things that I wanna just walk through here to demonstrate again of what we see in this passage. Number one, I'm gonna go through this relatively quickly and then I'm gonna ask us some questions. First and foremost, in verses 53 through 54, we see that the accusation and the hearing against Jesus are unjust. Mind you, Jesus had been unjustly arrested by a bribe that was placed upon Judas. That's entirely illegal. The accusation was brought before Jesus via the Sanhedrin. They couldn't do that. They had to hear an accusation that was brought formally to them. They could only judge on it. They could not make it and pronounce it. And we continue on, and we see that the hearing is completely unjust. It takes place at night under the cover of darkness. Now, they do a little bit of a mock trial later to try to make things look good, but the reality is that the decision is already made. The process is already moving forward. And then also what we see is, is that the witnesses and their testimony against Jesus are unjust. No witnesses are correct. They can't have a corroborated story to find true guilt in Jesus. The only witnesses that they try to agree on give a false testimony that is inaccurate and uncorroborated. And then the, finally, the trials and the sentencing against Christ are unjust. We see the Jewish system completely failed Jesus, let alone what happens before Pilate. Jesus endures six unjust trials. Three on the Jewish side, three on the Roman side, in a manner of a push forward to simply get him dead on the cross. We see also that the execution and death of Christ are unjust, and that's the entire gospel account. Jesus' pronouncement on the side of Sanhedrin is blasphemy. Jewish, uh, Jesus' pronouncement on the Roman side is guilty of conspiracy. The two don't agree. And yet Jesus goes to the cross, and like I said, where he should have had at least 24 hours. Now, okay, this is if it's normal, but let me, let me kind of help you out. Because this feast is going on, if this occurred, this trial should have occurred like days later because the holy festivities should have concluded, they should have been finalized, the Passover should have occurred, it should have been done, and then they should have deliberated. And then after, if Jesus was found guilty, they should have at least waited 24 hours before commencing with a sentence. And again, from the moment that Jesus is arrested to the moment that he gives up his spirit on the cross is less than 16 hours. 
And so we look at this and we see how unjust it was. And notice earlier, the hard part is, is would you go through this to let your unjust accusers go free? And I've said earlier that when I look at this, I become angry at these individuals, but I've also said it was my sin that held him there. I'm the unjust accuser who gets to go free. We are the unjust accusers who get to go free. Interestingly enough, after all is said and done, after Jesus is unjustly accused, after Jesus endures the most agonizing manner of death known to that modern time, after he is placed in a tomb that is marked for the wicked, after the world thinks that they are rid of him, and after Jesus rises from the grave, of which we celebrate today, his triumph over sin and death, after he has shown who he is, it is discovered in Acts 22, the fact that it shows us that even though these men acted in wickedness, it states it in the text, this was all according to God's plan and would lead to our redemption. Don't miss this. This whole thing, as unjust as it was, was God's plan to lead us to redemption. And that's what draws our hearts today. And that's what should cause us to rejoice in the risen Savior that we have. And so I want to ask you just a couple of questions sort of in this legal aspect. I want you to examine your heart this morning. And I just want to throw this out to you. I didn't talk much about Peter this morning, but notice that Peter is there. But where is Peter? Is Peter there advocating for Jesus? Is Peter the one who defends him? Is Peter the one saying, hey, this is wrong. This process is not right. It's unjust. You can't do this. I know Jesus, and I will step in to defend. No. And so lovingly, I want to ask you this. Do we love the idea of Jesus? But like Peter, do we keep ourselves at a distance when things get complicated? Another question that I want to ask. Perhaps you've been confronted by someone lovingly that Jesus indeed is God in the flesh and that Christ has died to forgive us of our sins and that we need to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be forgiven. That is the gospel story. That is what we celebrate today. And so lovingly, sort of in this judicial way, do you look for false testimony in an attempt to deny who Jesus is? I don't want to face my sin. I don't want to face who I am before God. I don't want to face who I am apart from God. I don't want to be called a sinner. I don't want to know that whatever I do isn't good enough to get myself to heaven. And so I'm going to concoct something. I'm going to look for false witnesses to tell me that I'm okay, we're okay, and all dogs go to heaven, and let's just sing kumbaya so that I can feel better about myself today and give myself a pat on the back. Where are my witnesses? Better yet, do we attempt to falsely exonerate ourselves of our guilt by falsely accusing the only one who can rib us from us? Friends that are gathered here this morning, may I recognize and may we realize that all of us are the ones who place Jesus on the cross. 
It's so easy to look to others and say, they did it wrong, they didn't do it right, they should have known, but look at me, I've got it all together, etc., etc., etc. And so we come in this morning with this half-hearted aspect of, Jesus has risen from the grave, but I'm not a sinner in need of a savior. And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is you cannot separate it that way. The joy of the resurrection is knowing that we worship a risen Savior. But the true joy of the resurrection is knowing that the resurrected Savior is the one who saves us from the justice we are due. The next thing I would ask is do we reject due process in a form uh, to form our own biased opinion about Jesus? Have we been presented with the evidence of the gospel? Have we been presented with its solidarity? Have we been presented with the fact that what we have in scripture can be proven to be accurate and true and real? And yet today we look and we say, oh, that's an old book. It can't be right. It can't be true. It can't be accurate. And yet we've discovered, even in this study that we did before, that when we look at the aspect of the scriptures, we come to discover through archaeological and textual critical evidence, which is scholarly work, that what we have before us is 99% accurate. These are the words of God. This is the gospel. This is who God is. This is who we are apart from God. And this is why we need Jesus Christ in our life. As sinners, we need to be brought to a Savior who goes to the cross and dies upon it after an unjust sentence so that we might have eternal life through him. My next question is simply this. Do we join the world in their mockery of Jesus? Do we like a little bit of Jesus, but when they mock him, do we kind of say, yeah, that's okay? And one of the things that I keep reminding myself of is we get to the event of the cross after Jesus has been unjustly accused, after he's gone to the cross, after he's just about to essentially give up his spirit, recognizing that he doesn't do so until what? The sins of what we need to pay have been atoned for. People are mocking him, they are looking at him and he turns and he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. On the reverse, do we accept that the only claim of truth by this trial is by Jesus? The only true statement, the only true valid point in this whole mockery from his arrest to his crucifixion is Jesus' statement that he is God. And recognize that that statement is what ultimately took him to his death. And then lastly, 
because of who Christ is, because he's risen from the grave, because we can be forgiven of our sins, because we have eternal life. In a world that is challenging who God is, I ask this question, do we hold firm to our faith and approach God with confidence because of what Christ has done? Lovingly, I ask you this question. Do we come in this Sunday and say he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed, yet tomorrow morning when the world begins to encroach on us, do we say, I wonder if he's there, I wonder if his promises are true, is he really gonna come back, can I really trust in him? Now I'm not saying that we can't be without our doubts, but if God through Christ is powerful enough to die on a cross and rise from a grave and to forgive us of our sins via his resurrection, the God who did just that is also powerful enough to send Christ again to establish his kingdom in heaven. And interestingly enough, what we see right there in the accusation is Jesus answers the question that has been illegally brought forth and he says, I am God and I'm also going to tell you, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. This morning we've examined this question, would you be willing to allow an unjust accusation, endure an unjust trial, receive an unjust sentence, and accept an unjust death to let your unjust accuser go free? And we look at this and we wonder, why did Christ do this? Christ did this because his eyes were on the cross for you and I. The main point, the main aspect that I want to leave you with this morning is that this great injustice was endured by Christ so that we can be justified and declared righteous before God. Christ endured an injustice so we might be justified and declared righteous. I want to read the words of Romans penned by Paul. We're looking at chapter 4, verses 23, and we're ending in chapter 5, verse 1. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. And they were speaking essentially Righteousness being credited to Christ. Great. But notice what Paul writes. They were not written for him alone, but also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. How are we credited righteousness? For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For those of us that are here, may we remember that we've been credited righteousness because we believe in Christ and we believe in the resurrected Christ. If there's anyone here this morning that is saying, how do I get this righteousness? I want to be righteous before God. I see what he's done for me. Right here is the gospel message. Believe in him. Believe in Christ. God in the flesh, who went to the cross to die upon it, to forgive us of our sins. But may we also recognize that Christ indeed is risen from the dead. You cannot have the Christian faith without the resurrection. And how was this accomplished? Notice what Paul writes in the next sentence. He was delivered over to death. It was my sin that held him there. He was delivered over to death for our sins. 
and was raised to life for our justification. I'm justified because the only one who was just endured an unjust trial so that I could be justified. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we now have peace with our God through Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate today. That's what we share in the resurrection of our Savior. That's why Jesus did what he did. And that's why we celebrate and say, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Because we have hope in the one who justifies and declares us righteous, having endured a completely unjust trial. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and I just thank you for each and every person that is here. I thank you for the individuals who've also gone to churches around our community, churches around our state, churches around our country, but also churches around our world. Father, we just praise you for who you are. Father, it it continues to boggle my mind what you've done for us. Your willingness to bring us before you to no longer be guilty of sin, to no longer be guilty of of being separated from you. Father, thank you that you're willing to do so and go to the cross. But also we praise you this morning as we celebrate the resurrection, recognizing that death could not hold you and sin could not overcome you. You did all of this, keeping your eyes on the cross to justify us and declare us righteous. And Father, in that, may we realize that when we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we can have eternal life. Thank you, Father, that it doesn't matter who we are or what we have done or haven't done. There is no sin so great that we cannot come before you today. Father, the only sin that separates us from you is blasphemy, a denial of who you are. So Father, no matter where we are, no matter what we think, no matter whether we feel that we're righteous to be here or not, may we recognize that the righteous one was willing to go to that cross so that perhaps today, by crying out to you and recognizing what you've done for us and saying we need you in our life, we too can be declared righteous and justified before you. Father, thank you that we don't buy it. Thank you that we don't educate ourselves to it. But simply by grace through faith, we trust in what has been done. And Father, we rejoice indeed that we worship a risen Savior. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say.